morning, everyone. Um, I just want to start by thanking Rob, um, because last weekend on Saturday, we had a lot of toing and froing just as we tried to get the recording done for the Saturday night meeting. Um, and I really appreciate, Rob, all your help last week trying to get that sorted. Um, Katie was adamant that she wanted a live meeting on a Saturday um, and a Zoom meeting, hopefully some point soon, a live meeting on a Sunday. And um, I've played around with all kinds of digital ways of doing this. And I've got an IT team at um, school who tried to help. And in the end, I just thought, you know what, just pitch up on Saturday night because uh, it's half an hour, 45 minutes. Nita said, yeah, there's nothing. Actually, there was something a little bit special last week. Those of you who were here in the Zoom meeting. Um, and I, so thank you both for all you've done. Um, and I, I want to start just by saying that although this is Zoom and although you know, all I see for some of you is just um, your name and a mute mic. Um, we, we believe in a living God. We believe in a God who is real, who's alive. We believe in a God who communicates. And um, I'm increasingly conscious that we are in a very special time at the moment. It's, um, it's the Chinese character for, um, for disaster or crisis, which is made up of two characters, two little bits. And one is danger and the other one is opportunity. Um, and Chris Blackham spoke a few months ago to all the heads in my trust and spoke about there's an opportunity here um, during a point where everybody, including us sometimes, feels anxious, feels nervous. There's an opportunity um, for us reconnecting with God and being the salt and light in the world that we'll re read about later in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, so I do think we are going to see an increase in the spiritual, in the supernatural, in the things that you can't explain in a human way. Um, and I'll just share one of those with you. Um, last week, those of you who are here, um, we made a reference or I made a reference to the Kardashians and DJ said immediately, you just spoke Kardashians at me and this has a real relevance on my life. We were talking about appearance and the importance of what's inside rather than outside. Um, this week I hit Tuesday and I had a, a theological problem and I was driving to work th uh, Tuesday morning, beautiful, beautiful morning. I was driving over to Roxwell, which is kind of halfway between Ongar and Chelmsford out in the country. And I was weighing up this theological issue of how is it that it seems that Matthew and Luke are both talking about a similar point in Jesus's ministry, um, but they use different words. And, and actually, you could take the words to mean quite different things. And people have done that. And I was thinking, I, I'm going to need to contact somebody who's really hot on theology. Um, and last week, we'd mentioned Drew Most who I can see he's on the call. Um, he's in the darkness. He's doing his spy um, kind of audition there. Um, but yeah, there's a little, uh, little emoji. Um, we, I thought to myself Tuesday morning, I will, give, I will give Drew a ring. But I had no idea what time it would be in Cameroon. Um, and also whether in Roxwell, where my reception's bad enough normally, whether I'd get through. So I thought I may want well need to give Dave Paul a ring. But again, I thought, what time is it? Is it going to be early? Is he going to be up? Um, is this a weird conversation? And then I saw this, um, this man, this old man um, running along by the side of the road in Roxwell. And um, I slowed my car down and I saw he had a stick. 
So I said, um, Hugh, morning, um, morning. What, how are you doing? What are you doing? He said, it's a beautiful morning, Julian. I'm running along and I'm picking up the litter around the village um, because I want to keep this village beautiful. Um, and uh, it's a gorgeous morning. Isn't God good? And I said, Hugh, that's awesome. Um, tell me why in Matthew, the Beatitudes are like this, but in Luke, the Beatitudes are like this. And for the next 10, 15 minutes, me in my suit in my car, Hugh with his stick with a handful of rubbish, explained to me how the differences between Matthew and Luke's Gospels, um, particularly relating to this sermon, can be explained. Um, so it was kind of useful that a former canon of Chelmsford Cathedral, um, Hugh Dibbins, just happened to be in the right place for me at the right time. Um, so, you know, coincidence, I'm sure. Um, but for me, absolutely needed it with a packed day at that precise moment. So, Drew, maybe next time I'll give you a ring. But for this time, um, God really helped me. What I'm going to do is I'm just, um, Lynn, I'm going to make sure I can see you and Mike. Um, but I'm actually just going to put up another screen for myself. So if I do at any point sort of miss something, then Mike Lynn just kind of wave at me or inter interrupt. That's absolutely fine. And we'll go for about 25 minutes or so. And then we've got time at the end for questions, feedback, things that God's been saying to you during the week. So we're at week two. We started the Sermon on the Mount last week. And last week we put it in the biblical context. And we said, you've got Matthew. Matthew is a Jew. He's writing for a Jewish audience. That's really important. He's trying to explain to the Jews that Jesus, who is the son of God, is the Messiah. That, yeah, he came from a real place called Nazareth. Um, and the rumor is nothing good ever comes from Nazareth. But he is actually God. He's the promised saviour. He's the Messiah. And so we saw in Matthew that Jesus was born, which in itself is quite remarkable. We saw that John the Baptist baptised him and then a group begins to form. Jesus chooses these people and says, you know, I'm choosing you to, to be fishers of men. It's great to be a fisherman. It's probably quite exciting to catch a fish, fish. But there is nothing as exciting as knowing God and seeing other people know him. So John and Jesus have one clear repeated message and at the start of Matthew you see the phrase repent for the kingdom of heaven is near and we said that the kingdom of heaven being near has a number of different possible meanings um, it means that the kingdom of heaven is getting closer it clearly means there is a kingdom of heaven so it puts next to it it, it, it juxtaposes the kingdom of heaven with the kingdom of earth and it basically says that there is a kingdom of heaven, there is something different, and Jesus the king, Matthew's saying, is king of a different kingdom. It's not like the kings and the rulers and the emperors on earth, this is different. And to prove it, there are signs and wonders that accompany this, so that you can't say this is an earthly kingdom, this is a normal physical way of ruling with the skills and attributes you'd expect. This is a spiritual kingdom where the spirit of God is very present and signs and wonders and miracles kind of blow open the natural. And I really want us to get hold of what it must have been like for John when John saw Jesus, because if he's preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. He kind of knows that it's coming. He's known that for most of his life, but then in 
front of him, he sees Jesus. And he actually sees the embodiment of God himself, the kingdom of God, in the form of Jesus. Think about that for a little moment. Think about when Jesus is born and at the temple, his mum and dad take him in and Anna and Simeon, who've been waiting for years to see the Messiah, see this baby and they know in their spirits, even though they're over 80, that actually God really is fulfilling his promise. It took a long, long time for that promise to be fulfilled for them and for the Jews, but it really happened. So as the crowds were settling on this mountainside at the start of Matthew chapter five, Jesus, as Mike said, Jesus speaks to them. And there are three things we're going to just start with. There are three points to this um, sermon. So the first thing is um, Jesus is describing what the kingdom's like. He is not giving a list of shoulds and ought tos and musts. That's not what this is. Um, that's the old thing, the commandments, the things you have to follow or you get punished. What Jesus is doing is he's describing his kingdom. He's saying this is what it is. This is what it's always been. This is what it's becoming. And this is what it will be. So this is what it is. This is what it's becoming as we on earth at the time get used to him. And this is what it will be when in the end times, we see God in all his glory, Jesus in all his glory, because, of course, it's an eternal, permanent kingdom. Secondly, what Jesus is doing is he's showing that God is more concerned with the heart, with the interior life, with the inside than with the outside and what we do. Now, when we become citizens of heaven, when we become followers of Jesus, when we live just for him, that does affect what we do. So what we do is important, but it's really secondary to what we are inside. And Hugh said to me that this is really about going Godwards. It's not even about going inwards. It's about going Godwards. Because when you go Godwards, it infuses what you are inside. It affects what you do outside and it gives you a permanency for the future. And then thirdly, we know that we talk about Matthew chapter five, chapter six. We talk about Luke in a minute, chapter six. But actually, all of those chapters and divisions have been put in afterwards. So there are some clear, recognisable sections in the sermon, and they do sort of link and they fit together, like the Beatitudes, the Lord's Prayer, the bit about the fulfilment of the law. Um, and this is the bit I really want to sort of try and grapple with a bit at the start of this. The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew is really similar to a section in Luke chapter six in Luke's gospel. And there are some real similarities between the two. So if you've looked before, brilliant. If you want to look over the next week, super. The similarities are basically that Jesus has just chosen his disciples in both of these gospels. Jesus has just climbed a mountain Jesus is in Galilee, um, near Capernaum. He's healing the crowds. He's performing miracles. And this really is Luke putting the passage, just like Matthew, right at the start of Jesus's ministry. So that positioning for Luke is really important. Um, and the, the Beatitudes with blessed are, blessed are, the bit about loving your enemies, the bit about wise and foolish builders, 
Those three things are all in Matthew and in Luke. But there's also some big differences. So Luke just has one chapter um, talking about this talk, whereas Matthew's got three full chapters. So Matthew's sermon is longer, it's fuller. Um, in Luke chapter six, it basically says that Jesus went down with them and stood on a level place. Whereas in Matthew, just before, it seems to say that actually um, Jesus comes. So, so Matthew's saying Jesus went up. Luke is saying Jesus came down. So you could think, well, which is it? Is it down or up? Um, I like to think of that is if I was going with a group of people up a mountain and I needed to talk to them, I wouldn't do it on a kind of um, on a sharp bit. I would look for somewhere flat. So I think there's a consistency here. If you look at Luke's gospel, it says Jesus has just gone up a mountain. It does say he then came to a plain, but it's quite straightforward. If you've ever been to this area, there are flat bits on the top of mountains. So I think this is the same time. This is the same talk that both of them are talking about. And it's not surprising if you think that probably Jesus is giving this talk and it's very unlikely that anybody is writing notes. It's certain that nobody had an iPad. It's definite that nobody had a mobile phone. The reception there would be terrible. Um, and it's likely that people didn't have pens and pencils. So when the Gospels are written, which are probably about 50 years after this happened, 50 years, they're trying to remember the stories. And already by AD 85 or so, we're not quite sure when they're written, but they're written close. Matthew is very, very clear. He's saying to the Jews, this is Jesus, the Messiah. Whereas Luke's gospel is for the Gentiles. It's for people who are not Jewish. So Luke doesn't go on and on about the fulfillment of the law. He doesn't go on about the Torah. He doesn't need to talk to a group of people who are set in a certain way of thinking. What he's saying in Luke's gospel is there is hope. He's basically saying um, that this gospel is for the last and the least, the marginalized, those people who've been downtrodden, those people who've got no hope, this gospel, Luke says, is for everyone. And so Luke's Beatitudes are really, really simple. You can't really read them other than they are written. Luke says, blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry now. Blessed are you who weep now. Blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you and insult you and reject you because Basically, in all those circumstances, you will be satisfied, you will be filled, you will be um, laughing, and you will receive a great reward in heaven. So what that basically means is that you may not get everything you want now in the here and now if you're hungry or if you are um, rejected or hated or excluded, but in the kingdom of heaven, you are certain and you are secure. And Luke then, unlike Matthew, does some contrasts. So Luke says, um, blessed if you're poor, but woe to the rich. Blessed if you're hungry, but woe to the well-fed. 
Woe to those who laugh. Woe if everything is going brilliantly for you and everyone is speaking well of you. Because basically, it's not woe, you're damned, you're going to eternal damnation. But it's woe, be careful. It's woe, be careful. Because when everything is going well for you, you've already received comfort. And the risk is you settle back with a nice glass of wine and everything's going smoothly. You don't need anything. You don't need anyone. You don't need a God. But... The good news, says Luke, is if things are going bad, if you are poor or blind or deaf or dumb or disabled or broken in any one, in, in any one of a million ways, Jesus is going to bring wholeness and completeness to you. So the first word for some of you, the first word for some of you on this uh, call today is that there is wholeness and completeness. There is shalom for you. However broken and messed up you feel, even as Christians, God will bring satisfaction. Because when Jesus says the kingdom of God, you can receive it now, even though you might not suddenly see money just arrive in your bank account or suddenly be able to physically see if you're blind, you can have a peace and a security and an anchor right now. It can come now because the kingdom of God is near and the kingdom of God is within you. You will be in the future in a place where there will be no pain. There will be no crying. There will be no poverty. But you can experience the satisfaction and the filling and the thriving right now. And so for some of us, that is really important. We need to put as we'll say a little bit later, the kingdom of God first, we need to seek his righteousness, and then we will be filled. So this is a real message of hope. It's a gospel. It's good news. Now, obviously, Matthew is looking at this slightly differently. And so what we've got to remember is Luke's bit, which I just want to say one other bit, is Luke, the quote before from the Old Testament in Luke, because he does quote the Old Testament, but he does it a bit differently. Luke quotes a bit where Jesus is starting his ministry and he stands up um, in a temple and he basically says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, and the year of the Lord's favour. So when at the start of the meeting, Lynn said to us today, Holy Spirit, this is your meeting come, that's the same spirit that gives us the power, like Jesus had the power, to preach good news to the poor, to bring a message of hope right now in the middle of a global pandemic that will bring security and certainty. So somebody as important and influential as Gandhi is quoted as saying, when he read this passage, it delighted me beyond measure. It gave me comfort and boundless joy. And so it should, because what we're essentially saying is that Jesus, God himself, the image of the invisible God, has come to earth to try and make more visible the eternal supernatural kingdom. 
So why would we not look at the words of Jesus and try and suck the very marrow out of them? Try and really get hold of what they mean. Don't forget, this, this Luke's gospel is the gospel with the prodigal um, coin, the lost coin, the lost sheep, the prodigal son, the lost son. You can almost sense in Luke's gospel this sense of Jesus, God, is after us. He loves us more than we love ourselves. He loves us more than our mums love us. He loves us more than anybody on earth loves us. He wants the best for us more than anybody else will ever want. And that's really important. What a great gospel. This is not you do this, you do that, you do this, you must, you ought, you should. This is a really exciting other kingdom. So in Matthew, we start all of these Beatitudes with blessed are and blessed is really simple it means happy or fortunate it doesn't need to be over spiritualized but what we do need to be clear about is it's a state rather than an emotion so sometimes like um ming going into a house is a physical embodiment of something that she really really needed and wanted tears come and sometimes when God comes to us, we cry. Sometimes when we're looking at a worship song, we're reading the words, or we just think, wow, sometimes we are overwhelmed with emotion. But the brilliant thing about the gospel and the Bible and the truth of Christianity is it isn't an emotion. It's not an emotion. It's a state. It's a fact. It's an eternal thing, which is why Jesus is the word of God. He's the Logos. He's the embodiment of logic and order. Jesus is the eternal word of God. He was with God before he came to earth. He will be with God forever. And so are we, if we believe. So we're not going to always be high as kites. We're not going to always be dancing round, although sometimes we might. But what we do have is a rock and an anchor. And any of you who've been to Portsmouth will know that on the seafront, um, I'd like to pretend that I've been there because I'm really fascinated by ships, but there's a really great shopping centre there. Um, but there is an anchor along <coughs> that area. And the anchor is enormous. It's probably five metres long. And I always look at that anchor and just think, Wow, if you threw that overboard, that's going to slow even the biggest of ships. It's going to secure you. So when we are told we have an anchor that is steadfast and firm, this is not something that is a little bit variable depending on the weather. This is definite, certain and secure. So it's making sense now to us that what we are going to be told is blessed or happy we are when we. So we're going to look at just four of them today, really fairly quickly. And what I want to start by thinking about is, is there a logic, is there a structure and order to the way in which they're presented? Now, my personal feeling is that Matthew is doing two things. Firstly, he's describing what we as the Christians, the inhabitants of the kingdom of heaven, what some of the things that we kind of had before we were Christians are good. 
some of us have been Christians for such a long time that we don't really remember because we were little kids. We don't really remember what it would have been like. But we know what it's like when we try and go our own way. We know what it's like when we really like some of those things that we know aren't good for us. Somebody said last night, it's almost as though there are these things that are good for us that, that we, we kind of need to get to, but sometimes there's a pain about it. So what we're hearing here is Jesus saying, you need to give up your life like I will so that you can find eternal comfort. You might want to come back on some of that a little bit later. Thirdly, Jesus says, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Now that's interesting. And we could debate about is that this earth now is that the future earth? Because inheritance suggests something you're going to get in the future. But the key thing is this meekness is the same as the weakness that we need if we are going to get God in our lives. It's about utterly understanding that we can't do everything. We can't, in fact, do anything really without the spirit of God. It doesn't mean we have to be doormats. It simply means we need to get on our faces regularly before God saying, help me. And throughout the Bible, much of this meekness, much of this spirit uh, of, of mourning, much of this is done privately. So you'll remember that people like Daniel and Moses in the Old Testament, they go before God on their own and say, this is too much for me. I can't do it. Then God fills them, gives them the power so they can go out into the world and be the salt and light. So when we read in the next few weeks about needing to be salt and light, some of you will be feeling, well, I've got nothing to give. I'm, I'm useless. What am I? But actually what Jesus is saying is that's the starting point for me to be able to use you. If you go out there thinking that you are God's gift to the world, actually he can't use you in the same way as if you are naturally someone, I won't name you, but you know who you are. You are there. I can see you. There are some of you here. You just don't feel you've got anything to give. But this upside down kingdom is saying you are just the people who bring hope, who bring strength, who bring nourishment to people in the world, to Christians, to others in the church, and more importantly, to those who aren't in the church. And the last thing that we're going to look at today is the great verse, the great, great verse. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, I said last night, I'm, I'm not someone who's been hungry all that much. And some of you will, will say, yeah, we can tell that. Um, but actually, there has been an occasion when I was really thirsty. Um, I was doing the Gold Duke of Edinburgh when I was at school and we were walking in the Lake District and um, we walked 50 miles in four days and somebody decided that some of those would be up some of the biggest mountains in England. So it wasn't nice and easy. And like a good boy, I'd packed one water bottle and I'd learned that you're not supposed to really drink water from um, the streams unless they're really clear and every now and again we'd see a sheep in the stream and we'd, it would be dead and we'd think don't touch that water so basically after all this walking um, I did sleep 
But after all this walking, I was thirsty. And I went to this campsite and we had orange juice. And oh, that orange juice was some of the tastiest orange juice. There was something special about it. And we went back um, a few years later, quite a few years later. And um, I said to Judith, we're going to go to this farm where the orange juice is like nothing you've ever drunk on earth. And we went to this, we went to this farm and the orange juice was kind of all right. It was because I was so thirsty that just anything probably would have tasted lovely. Now, the great news about hungering and thirsting for righteousness is when you drink righteousness and when you eat righteousness, it does fill you. It does satisfy. Now, the, the honest truth here, last night I shared that story and I looked round and in the front was Michelle Harriman. Now, I looked at Michelle last night and I said, but of course, Michelle, you know this because you were there. You were there with me on that Duke of Edinburgh gold in the latest year when we arrived at that farm to drink the orange juice. She said, yeah, didn't it taste good? Didn't it taste good? I said, yeah, but it doesn't anymore, Michelle. Now, there's another bit where God, I think, was saying something to her about let's get hold of bread that does fill us. Let's get hold of things that do fulfill. And the answer is we get hold of righteousness. We seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So what is righteousness? It's really got two bits to it. One bit about righteousness is right with God. So it's about right standing. So it's about putting, if you like, Jesus in front of you when you get into heaven, hiding behind him and going, phew, thank goodness I've got Jesus there because otherwise, God, you would see and I'm not getting into this place. So there's a bit of righteousness that is like a shield. I think, is it a shield of righteousness or a breastplate? Breastplate. So if you've got a breastplate of righteousness, it protects you. It protects your vital organs. You need the shield of faith, don't you, as well? So you're going into heaven with the breastplate of righteousness, with the shield of faith. Righteousness protects you. It's a kind of done deal. As a Christian, you need the righteousness of God imputed to you, given to you, so you get into heaven. Done deal, you're in the kingdom. But righteousness is a bit more than that. Righteousness is also about right living. Righteousness is also about being sanctified, being purified. It's about thinking the right things and doing the right things. So in the kingdom of God, there are people who screw up and mess up. There are people who don't get things right, but there are people who are hungering, thirsting, zealous, passionate for the kingdom of God and right, good living. So for us, what we're being encouraged really to do in this passionate sort of area is to give everything to God, is to think to ourselves, actually, there is nothing, there is nothing like finding the satisfaction, the fulfillment, that great deep feeling of knowing that you are doing what pleases God. Now, it's impossible. It's impossible to live a life where we are holy in that kind of way, which is why God gives us his Holy Spirit to live in us and to guide us into all righteousness. So 
What I would say is to those of us who are feeling this is impossible, this is topsy-turvy, this is miles away from us, it kind of is. But you know as well as I do that when we touch that sense of really, really pleasing God, when we know we're his, we know we're doing what the kingdom asks of us, there is nothing like it. So week two, my encouragement to you is the kingdom of God through the spirit of God, there is nothing like it.